So last week we took a break from our chronological study of the Old Testament to deal with the difficult text in Judges 19 and 20 that just providentially came up in our reading. And I thought it would be prudent to just look at that rather than have it lingering in everyone's mind if I were to just change the subject and preach on something else entirely after reading that shocking and horrific passage. But tonight we're back in our chronological study of the Old Testament. And by way of reminder, in, in uh, the last couple of chapters of Numbers, the 12 spies had gone into Canaan to do some reconnaissance. And when they got back, only two of the spies encouraged the people to go into the land. And the other 10 made the hearts of the people melt. They acknowledged, yes, it is a good land, but there are giants in the land. We seem like grasshoppers compared to them. And so everybody said, well, we, we're not going in then. And God punished them by making them turn back toward the wilderness to wander around for another 40 years until all of those who were 20 years old and upward at the time of the rebellion died in the wilderness. And the children that they had said they thought would become prey were old enough to be the ones who would go in themselves and fight and take the land that their parents had been unfaithful to obey the Lord to take. Our passage tonight, taken from Numbers 15, 32 to 41, is not handpicked by me for this particular Sunday. It just so happens in God's providence that we're here. This is the chronologically next recorded narrative that we're given in Holy Scripture. This is what takes place sequentially immediately after the Israelites refusal to go into the land of Canaan. And so here we are. Let's jump right in with a theological look at verses 32 to 36. It's not hard to understand what happened here. Nobody, nobody reads that little section and says, what? I don't get it. We understand what happened in verses 32 to 36. What I mean by taking a theological look at this section, though, is that we should try to figure out why this happened. Why did God command that a man be killed for gathering sticks on the Sabbath day? Well, for background, we should know a couple of passages back in Exodus that have some bearing on the text before us. First, Exodus 31, verse 14 says, You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Second, Exodus 35 and verse 3 says, You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Taking into account these two passages, we can begin to understand what is happening then in the text that is before us. Evidently, the man in Numbers 15 is gathering sticks to build a fire. Well, the Israelites knew that Sabbath-breaking was a capital offense. What seems to have been unclear was whether the preparation to light a fire was tantamount to actually lighting a fire, and thus deserving of death. So the man's held in custody, and we are told that the Lord said to Moses, The man shall be put to death. 
So apparently in God's eyes, yes, preparation to light a fire was tantamount to actually lighting a fire. That's why the man was put to death. He profaned the Sabbath day by doing on it work which ought not to have been done on that particular day. Now why did the whole congregation stone the man? Well, the simple answer is because God commanded it. The congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. Numbers 15 and verse 35. But why did God command that? One commentator puts it well. Stoning is carried out by the whole congregation to show community solidarity in rejecting the sin in its midst. The congregational stoning impresses viscerally upon the person, or pardon me, upon the people, the consequences of sin. The congregational stoning impresses viscerally upon the people the consequences of sin. It's one thing to read in the paper that a criminal has been executed. It's another thing to execute a criminal. It also impresses upon the person being stoned and upon the nations who hear about the Israelite practice of communal stoning. It impresses, it impresses upon these other parties just how seriously the people of God take sin. The practice of communal stoning then exemplifies and also reinforces community solidarity in rejecting sin. So that's a theological look at verses 32 to 36. Let's now take a theological look at verses 37 to 40, what follows immediately after. Again, what is happening here is clear enough. God commands his people to make tassels with blue thread on them and to attach these tassels to their clothes in order to remember the commandments of the Lord and to be warned not to follow after their own inclinations. After all, that's the course of the warning not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. Don't follow your own inclinations. Rather, follow the commandments of the Lord. God's people are not to follow their own inclinations. God's people are not to lean on their own understanding, as Proverbs 3 to 5, 3 verse 5 says. They are not to live in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, as Ephesians 2 verse 3 says. They are not to succumb to the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, as the Apostle John puts it in 1 John 2 16. They are not to decide for themselves what is right and wrong according to their own inclinations and preferences, but they are to obey the commandments of the Lord. And these tassels are to be reminders of this juxtaposition between their own inclinations to follow their own hearts and eyes and then the commandments of the Lord on the other hand, which ought to be their guiding standard. It's not hard to understand that much from reading verses 37 to 40. But theologically, why did God choose blue tassels to remind the people of his laws and of their proclivity to disobey? The most likely answer is as follows. 
Blue was one of the foremost colors of the tabernacle. And it was used to cover the most holy things. When the tabernacle was being moved from place to place as the Israelites were traveling. So for example, the Ark of the Covenant was covered with blue when transported. Likewise, the table of the bread of the presence and the lampstand from the holy place were covered with blue when they were being transported. And therefore, the blue tassels are likely meant to be reminders of the whole tabernacle system. The holiness of God. The mercy of God. The sinfulness of man. The need for atonement. God's provision of atonement. The need to go westward back into God's presence. The provision of God to go back westward into God's presence. And so on and so forth. The blue would remind them of the tabernacle, which would remind them poignantly and, and potently of all of these things, comprehensively. The blue tassels were a visual reminder of their inclination to whore after their own heart and eyes and not to follow the Lord, necessitating the blood of bulls and goats to be offered up, necessitating the priestly intercession before God. But simultaneously, the blue tassels would serve as a reminder that God had given priests to intercede for them, and God had given sacrifices to atone for their sins. The blue tassels would serve them as a reminder not only of their sin, but of God's willingness to see their sin atoned for and to allow them to re-enter His presence again, even after their sin had made a separation. So the blue tassels were a reminder that at one and the same time, both of the law and the gospel, both of their sin and the atonement that God had made for them. So that's a theological look at verses 32 to 36 and verses 37 to 40. Let's now take a theological look at verse 41. Many people have noted that in the Ten Commandments, or pardon me, that the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 are prefaced by this statement. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's only after God says that that he says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, and, and so on and so forth. The preface here, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The preface here brings with it a certain logic. Which informs how then the Israelites should understand the Ten Commandments which follow. The logic being that it is He who rescued the Israelites. It is He, their Redeemer, who commands their obedience and is deserving of their obedience. Numbers 15, verse 41. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. 
I am the Lord your God. Yeah. It serves the same sort of purpose. It caps off this section, occurring at the end of this section. But it serves as the same, the same sort of purpose as the preface of the Ten Commandments. It reminds the Israelites that the one who commands and deserves their obedience is the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt to be their God. Because God rescued the Israelites from slavery, He is not only worthy of their obedience as the Creator, and therefore the God of all men, but He is especially worthy of obedience from the Israelites, particularly if anyone on earth should obey Yahweh. It is the Israelites. Because he is their redeemer too. So the one who says in verse 40, You shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. The one who says that is the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. That's what verse 41 is doing theologically in this passage. So let's now make some applications of this text to our lives in the 21st century. First, and, and probably most obviously, we shouldn't break the Sabbath. It would be wrong to read this passage and just say, well, thankfully, now in these New Testament times, God doesn't care if we break the Sabbath now. The fourth commandment is as much a part of God's abiding moral law, the Ten Commandments, as any one of the other nine, each of which will remain forever relevant and binding upon men. Sure, there are contextually specific aspects to some of these commandments as they appear in the Ten. For example, coveting my neighbor's donkey is not a particular danger to me, personally. First of all, my neighbor doesn't have any donkeys. Second of all, if I owned the donkey, I would have no idea what to do with it. I, I don't have any fields to work, and I wouldn't even know how to put a donkey to work on them if I did. So, that particular form of the command against coveting is not contextually relevant to me in my modern, basically suburban, I guess you could say, context. But the underlying principle not to covenant is binding upon me. So what it looks like for me not to covenant is different from what it looked like for the old covenant Israelites and even modern day folks living in a rural context not to covenant. But the principle is abiding. Or to give another example, the reason attached in Exodus 20 to the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, is contextually relevant for Old Covenant Israelites, but not for us. Namely, here's the reason attached, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. We're not going into an earthly temporal Canaan and, be give, and being given a geographical space of our own where we will maintain our possession of it if we obey God's commandments and we will be vomited out of it 
if we don't. That's not our situation. That's not what's promised to us in the new covenant. So that's not a reason that we would obey the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. And yet, the precept to honor your father and mother is binding upon us. Likewise, the motivation for and the outworking of obeying the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, are different for us than they were for the old covenant Israelites. But the precept remains binding upon us. We keep Sunday now instead of Saturday in order to commemorate Christ's rescue of us from the guilt and misery of our sin which the exodus in, from Egypt merely pointed towards and foreshadowed. But we still set aside one day in seven as rest from our ordinary work in order to do the work of worship as the fourth commandment requires of us. So the wrong way to read and interpret this passage in Numbers 15 would be to simply say, well, thankfully God doesn't care now if we break the Sabbath. So this really has not much to do with us other than just showing how serious God was about the Sabbath back then. To the contrary, we should recognize just how seriously the Lord takes the violation of his Sabbath. And we should recognize that whenever we are not killed for breaking it, it's not because we don't deserve to die. But rather, it's because God is merciful in sparing us the penalty that we deserve in keeping with the general tenet of the covenant of grace, that new covenant in which he treats us not as our sins deserve for Christ's sake. Do we deserve to die for adulterous thoughts or actions? Yes, we do. Do we deserve to, to die for idolatry or, or imagining God in some way other than He has revealed Himself? Yes, we do. Do we deserve to die for breaking His Sabbath? Yes, we do. And yet, if God should mark iniquities, who could stand? God treats us not as our sins deserve for Christ's sake. But it doesn't mean that we don't deserve to die for the breach of his law. Second, first, first application to our modern lives is we should keep the Sabbath. Second, we should embrace community solidarity in rejecting sin. When there's a case of church discipline, whether it's about a Sabbath issue or any other issue, we should put community solidarity into practice. It is good for all of the members of the church to be brought into the loop at some point and have the opportunity to speak and to reason with the unrepentant offender and ultimately, if necessary, to cast their vote for him to be removed from the membership of the church. The practice of communal stoning exemplifies and also reinforces community solidarity in rejecting the sin in the community's midst. And likewise, the practice of communal church discipline exemplifies and also reinforces community solidarity in rejecting sin. 
third application for our modern lives from this passage. It would be prudent for us to find intentional ways to recognize and remind ourselves of what the blue tassels remind of the Old Covenant Israelites of. Namely, our inclination to pour after the desires of our own hearts and eyes and to neglect God's commandments. And our responsibility to fight against this disobedient inclination and to keep God's commandments. I know men who keep a picture of their wives by their desk at work or on the lock screen of their phone to remind them, remind themselves and to signal to others that they are in a marriage covenant with another person which may not be violated. I know that Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, keeps a replica of a human skull on his desk at work to remind himself that he is a creature made for a specific time and a specific opportunity and a unique stewardship of influence, life, and energy, and that he ought to make the most of the time given him. End quote. It is for him a memento mori, a reminder of his own impending death, and that he will give an account for the stewardship of his time and his abilities that the Lord has entrusted to him. Our beloved Canadian pastor, Chris Powell, his home Wi-Fi password is Ecclesiastes 11.9, the full text of which, which, not his password, he just says Ecclesiastes 11.9, but the full text reads, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. It's meant to be a reminder that God is not some kind of cosmic killjoy, but that nevertheless we will have to answer to Him for everything we do, whether in the real world or online. Likewise, His Wi-Fi network name is Jesus Saves Sinners Like Us. Sorry, Chris, if you now get hacked. <laughs> But though, though we have no direct command to weave reminders into our lives in the New Covenant, other, other than in corporate worship, where we have this command to partake of the Lord's Supper in remembrance, there is no, you don't have to wear blue tassels on the, the, the corner of your t-shirts or your dresses or whatever. These men have given us examples of how we can weave reminders into our everyday lives that we are accountable to God, that we have moral responsibilities, that we are not autonomous beings who can go after whatever our eyes and our hearts desire without restraint. It would be prudent for us to do likewise, to find ways not to forget God from Monday to Saturday. Not to act without reference to God and think and feel without reference to God Monday to Saturday because our hearts have forgotten who we are and whose we are. But to figure out how to build into our physical spaces and our routines reminders 
that we are the people whom God has rescued from guilt and misery. And that He commands us to keep His commandments. And that He is deserving of our obedience. And that we will be inclined to go after the desires of our heart and the desires of our eyes and to whore after these things. And that God has made provision for us in the new covenant, not only that our sins would be forgiven, but that we might walk in newness of life. It would be prudent for us to, excuse me, to craft for ourselves some blue tassels. Fourth application of this text to our modern lives. We should operate with the logic of verse 41 firmly in mind. That as our Redeemer, God is not less worthy of our obedience now that we're saved. Some people understand grace that way, you realize. But rather, having saved us, God has become even more worthy of our obedience. And we are all the more obligated to Him. The 1689 Confession of Faith, which our church holds to, says this in chapter 19 and verse or and uh, paragraph 5. The moral law does forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof. And that not only in regard to the matter contained in it but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither does Christ in the Gospel in any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. Did you catch that? Christ in the Gospel does not in any way dissolve our obligation to keep God's law, but rather strengthens it. If we owed God obedience as our Creator, if simply for the fact that we are creatures and He is our Creator and He told us to do stuff, we ought to obey Him. How much more do we now as Christians owe God obedience when He has loved us with an everlasting love? And given us his only begotten Son, whom we now love because he has first loved us and died for us, showing his love for us in this that while we were still sinners, he died for us. How much more do we now, as Christians, owe God obedience when he has shone in our hearts? To give us the light of the knowledge of His glory in the face of His dear Son, Jesus Christ. If anyone ought to obey God, anyone walking this earth ought to obey God, it ought especially to be Christians. For we have received so much good 
from the Lord's hand. We have been recipients of so much benevolence. We have been recipients of a mighty rescue. God has done for us what we could not have done for ourselves. In the fullness of time, God set forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Because we were liable to the law's penalty. Christ came and kept the precepts of the law for us and bore the penalty that the law required in our room instead. He was born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. If anyone ought to obey and be real serious about keeping God's law, it's not people who think that they have to obey God's law to be saved. If anyone ought to be real serious about obeying God's law, it ought to be people who are already saved apart from the works of the law because Jesus came and kept the law for them. If you worked for a man nine to five, Monday to Friday, and you're expected to be there during those hours and fulfill your responsibilities during those hours, and then you fell seriously sick and needed a heart transplant in order to live. And one day, your employer's adult son visited you in the hospital and volunteered himself to die so that you could live. To give his own beating heart for your weak and sickly heart. And the dad, who is your employer, agreed that this would be a right and good course of action. And you received the heart transplant. And then you attended your employer's son's funeral. Who died for you. Would it be right for you to be late for work the next Monday morning? Would you ever think yourself justified to give anything less than your best for this employer? Of course, it's not a perfect analogy for Jesus lives. But thinking it through like this might help impress upon us just how much more obligated we are now to obey God in view of who he is to us as redeemer as well as creator. If we were obligated before, we are that much more obligated now. Having been justified apart from the works of the law, nevertheless we are not set free from the precepts of the law. Again, as the confession of faith says, Christ does not in any way dissolve our obligation to God, but much strengthens it. Let us remember then who God is to us in Christ and heed him carefully when he says, you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. Let us be holy people then as Christ's people for Christ's sake. 